Welcome back to Fostered Out Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families, as well as professionals. My name is Chris, and I'm an education coordinator at Foster Adopt Minnesota. And I'm Sunny, also an education coordinator here at Today, we will be discussing the role of a special education surrogate. So in full transparency, before we met today, I had to consult the Google about this topic. So I'm <laughs> looking forward to our conversation today. So Chris, have hey. you had much exposure to special education surrogacy before today? Well, Sunny, I was the same. I totally agree. Um, I hadn't heard about this important role either. So I hope this episode helps spread the word about the services of a special education surrogate. And before our guests join us, I want to share how this episode came to life and how I heard about a special education surrogate. In October of 2023, I had the honor of presenting FAM's Distinguished Service Award to Norma Graham. Since she couldn't attend the in-person ceremony at Circus of the Heart to receive the award, the ceremony came to her, and it was so nice. Duluth Public Schools hosted us. Shout out to ISD 709 and Julie Venus for providing the space. And to note, Norma works while she volunteers with Julie, who is a teacher on special assignment and assistive technology. Anyway, we had a cheering section from St. Louis County Public Health and Human Services, along with Julie and our guest today. Listening to this amazing group share their stories about how our guests care for every child they've been assigned to warmed my heart. This team gives their all to make sure children receive a quality, meaningful education, even when the, when the world around them might be crumbling. So I knew there was an education opportunity in the making, so here we are today. Please welcome Norma Grand, Martha Lippett, and Shar Matheson. Norma, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I'll start with my name. My name's Norma Graham. Um, I trained as a speech pathologist back in, in the 70s and have since been licensed in two more areas, regular education and special education, and worked my entire career as a speech pathologist, mainly in the Duluth Public Schools. Um, I began working as a surrogate parent when I retired from the school district, and this is my eighth year of doing it. And um, uh, I think it's important for people to understand that it's really a special ed advocate, that the word parent is kind of misleading, and that I do absolutely no parenting, but I work with special ed teams as um, the parent, the role of the parent in the special ed process. Um, and the way, uh, we, more about me, um, I started this because when I was working as a speech pathologist, one of the sites I was in was um, a school hooked to a treatment center. And there was a young woman who came from the Dakotas and her teacher kept saying, her regular teacher kept saying, she's special ed, I know she's special ed. And um, there was no one to sign the paperwork to begin the assessment. and. Um, she waited about three to four months for an assessment. And um, I was part of the team testing her, her speech and language. And um, as soon as uh, they found us, a retired social worker to come in and sign the paperwork. And as soon as it was signed, I, I started testing her. 
And um, the test I gave her was strictly auditory. I would say a word and she would point to a picture. And very quickly, I realized that she could not hear me. And um, we stopped the testing and I went and found her her um, residential workers and said, I don't think she can hear me. And they got her right into the doctor. Well, her ears were so plugged with wax um, that they had to put her out and do surgery to remove it. And she also needed glasses. Um, this was not a special ed child. Um, she had a vision and hearing interfering with her performance in the classroom. And um, she waited a long time for that assessment. And at that time I said, uh, when I retire, I'm gonna do this job. No kid will ever wait four months for an assessment again. Under my watch, I'll sign every paper that can put in front of me. Um, she never quit giving me a little smile when she'd see me. And um, kids who have terminated rights um, often have trauma in their background. And um, the thing that's identified first is usually emotional behavioral disabilities. Um, this little girl did not act up, and so no one ever noticed that she couldn't see or hear. Um, that's not okay. Um, I force every team that has to work with me to do a vision and hearing check, not just review records. They need to do a, an actual vision and hearing screening. Um, it's such a basic, easy thing to fix um, to avoid mislabeling a child. And um, I believe in education. Um, it's your best investment. And each of these children own special ed rights. They're entitled to a free appropriate public education. And my only role is to do the best job I can to see that happens. Um, I have allegiance to no one. It takes an action of the school board to get rid of me. And that's <laughs> really comforting. Um, I do what I think is right. And it's always about the child. Um, well, you shared a lot about yourself. So thank you for well, your introduction. So Martha, you're going to have to follow up Norma with your intro. <laughs> well, Tell Martha's a little bit about got, yourself. got her own shtick. She can handle it. <laughs> Hard act to follow. Yes. Um, so my name is Martha Lippett. I have been um, in education for 30, over 33 years. Well, actually from birth. Um, my parents were um, educators, psychologists, child psychologists. And so I was uh, innate to become a teacher. Um, I started out though as a general education teacher, but I was hearing from special ed teachers. I was already doing things that they didn't need to come in my classroom. I was already doing individualized work with all of my students. So I went back to school and uh, became a, a special ed teacher, specializing in early child, uh, excuse me, elementary. Uh, well, I was elementary already, specializing in uh, specific learning disabilities and emotional behavioral disorders. And um, I helped start a, a day treatment program in Superior, Wisconsin, right after my master's. Um, was there at that day treatment for quite a while um, before it sort of closed down. And then I moved over to Duluth Public Schools, where I have been the last 17 years. And I retired from there in August. Um, it's hard for me to stop 
Uh, my brain has been a specially compliant brain for a long time, so I'm actually working part-time for, for a local Carleton school, which is where I'm sitting right now because I have an IP meeting later. Um, but part of my job in my 17 years uh, or the last 10 or so years in Duluth was um, coordinating um, homebound services and coordinating and uh, surrogacy services, um, hence where I found Norma and found this great advocate for children and started looking up. So I was familiar with the laws of who could be a surrogate parent, who couldn't be, what they should and shouldn't be doing, because Norma sure asked a lot of questions. So I had to know these things. Um <laughs> And so, yeah, so until I retired, I was, uh, that was one of the lots of jobs I had in my list of things I did for Duluth schools. So it was, um, I did, uh, not everybody knows who can be a surrogate and who can sign, uh, who can sign special ed documents, because it's not the same as um, being a county worker that could, you know, that has a, a child that's been in their custody, they could sign them into the doctors, they could sign them into treatment, they could sign them for surgery. A special ed paperwork being federal documents are a whole different um, area of who can sign and who can't. So I had to educate a lot of uh, county workers over the years and bring up the law and cite, you know, who can sign, how do, who can be a, a county, uh, who, excuse me, who can be a surrogate and um, looked for people that were no longer uh, um, working for the district or weren't employed um, for anybody. Um, so that I could, so I could assign the right people. And at first I had many people my first years and then it got so that uh, Norma was the one that all I needed. She would take anybody <laughs> and everybody that I assigned. And um, yeah, so that her plate was as busy as mine most days. Yeah, so between the two of you, years and years of service, and then we're adding Char Matheson to the years of service. So Char, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I don't have the near the level of uh, years of service that these two have. <laughs> um, I'm <laughs> I am the um, I used to be a guardian ad litem back uh, in the I don't even remember when, but it was I did about ten years of that, and then moved over to uh, county child protection work, where I've been for about seven or eight years now. Um, my background is that I was raised by a teacher who could not get special ed services for most of the kids in her classroom. So she just learned how to be a special ed teacher in the classroom. And she had lots of um, lots of stories about things that kids were not getting as a result of um, lack of resources, lack of uh, ability or um, understanding by other people about what they were entitled to. She was very frustrated over the years. And so I grew up hearing those stories and then I became a guardian ad litem and attended every IEP meeting I was ever aware of and uh, started to hear about surrogates and who's signing off on these IEPs. It seemed to me like the IEP meetings were really rote. Um, I would bring up something that I saw in a child and somebody would say, well, that doesn't really matter. This is just school. And I was dismayed by that. Um, did not know about special ed surrogates at all until I became a child protection worker and eventually moved over to taking a caseload of just kids whose parents' rights have been terminated, typically difficult kids to place for adoption. Um, often I was open to taking kids that others thought were unadoptable, which I don't believe is a, is a real thing. I don't believe there's any child that's not adoptable. 
or that could not, does not deserve permanency on some level. And in the process, I realized that, again, I always think I, I don't know what I don't know. And I certainly did not know special ed law. And despite having had some of my own kids go through special ed, I've always felt like I was the odd man out at all the meetings and I didn't know what they were entitled to. And as the social worker, I knew I couldn't sign for them. I knew foster parents had been signing for them, but at some point along the line, I realized that we needed somebody besides a foster parent to sign off on these really complicated cases. And I began looking for more and I discovered Norma. And I didn't really discover Norma because I had known Norma years and years ago when she was a speech pathologist at an elementary school and we had had a very, very tough case together. I was a brand new guardian ad litem and neither one of us could get anyone to listen to what, what our concerns were. So we have a trauma history ourselves. And um, <laughs> so when I heard Norma was the special ed surrogate at our school district, I was all on board and wanted to get her appointed as quickly as I could to as many kids as I could. So that's how we ended up being this team. Well, I couldn't imagine a better group of people to have this podcast session with and, you know, share all of your knowledge and with everyone so we know about this important program. So let's just get started. Um, I know we've all kind of touched on the special education education surrogate, but what is a special education surrogate? Um, Norma, I don't know if you wanna start. Sure, I will. Martha would send me a letter, um, hard copy letter, and there's about three words in there that I would read each time it says you have the rights and responsibilities of a parent in the special education process, rights and responsibilities. And um, I take it seriously. It really bugs a lot of people. Um, and I don't care. Um, it doesn't, it's not about going to a meeting about anything, but this child's rights to what to his education, his or her education. Um rights, responsibilities. And sometimes I have to, I mean, there are tons of wonderful professionals out there, don't get me wrong. But one person not doing their job can really do a number on a kid and that's not okay. And um, that's for me what a, the surrogate is. And um, The, it's the child's rights. These, This is their education. They get one shot at second grade. That's it. And um, probably there are so many factors with for kids with terminated rights. Um, and they're primarily what I work with. Um, the trauma. They move. Um this process just gets started and they move and then they wait a bit in their new place and they get started again and they move. And so you need to follow um, the timeline. The, there are very specific timelines with special education that meetings should happen within so many days. Um, an IEP should be pulled together in so many days so that you can't postpone it and never get services in place, if, if that makes sense. So that's my role to, 
to keep that process moving until the child is receiving the services they're entitled to. Make sense? Yeah, and Martha or Shar, do you have anything to, to add to the description? Well, the process um, before Norma gets it, um, we have a student who, and many times it is in our residential sites, and they go to see who can who can they invite to the IP meeting, and they'll see the court documents in the in the files there, um, saying, hey, this is who you know get, this is who has signed the student up for treatment, and they'll send me the documents and I'll read them. And many times it is their award of the state. Well, then I know right away I can assign a surrogate because there are no um, legal rights if if the if the uh, termination of parental rights have happened, the TPR, then I have the right to look for and assign a surrogate. Many times, just a, just a, um, I would get sent documents and it would be, again, the county worker has the right to put them, um, that, have, that have become guardians, put them in day treatment or put them in a facility to get therapy, but but yet parent rights have not been terminated. Even it is in this case of a CHIPS petition, parents still have those rights. And so I cannot assign a surrogate um, parent um, to those students. Those parents still have the special ed rights. So that was where a lot of times they came, well, the parents don't have, you know, the parent, they're not living with the parents. That doesn't make any difference. Uh, the parents still are the ones that have the legal rights. And so um, really understanding the surrogacy law that the, um, of who can and cannot be assigned and who, um, you know, parents still have the rights, you can't assign a surrogate. Um, so many times the, the one that's gray area of, okay, I can't assign sign a surrogate because the parents still have rights, but the parents are gone. Parents are nowhere to be found. Right. And this is something that happens and people say, well, who can I get to sign? It's the county worker wants to sign. No, foster parents want to sign. Well, um, many times I could assign the foster parents, but that's only if parental rights were gone, have been terminated. So you have a situation where um, parents are nowhere to be seen. Uh, I still have to do a lot of investigation. Can we get a hold of them? If they're, if they are not involved in the child's life, but we can get a hold of them, they could assign surrogacy rights so that I could assign someone, even though they still have the legal rights. It's not giving up their rights, but they can assign parents. The bio parents can assign um, through a document um, someone as their surrogate. Um, can't find the parents, have no idea. Well, guess there's a grandma. If there's a bio relative, and this is part of the surrogacy law, if there's a bio relative, a grandma or an auntie, someone who is a bio relative that will step up, hey, maybe they can't take the student into their home because they don't have the ability to take care of them. So that's why they're in foster homes, but still they are a bio relative. They have the rights to step up and they can be the signer without me having to go through um, assigning a surrogate, which I can't do at that point. So that is again, something that we learned through this process um, that I have to go through all that research and looking for before I can actually say, hey, Norma, I have one for you. Another piece there. Um, something I learned, I actually studied last night, so I'd sound halfway intelligent today. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, Martha and Shar, you'd be interested in this. Part of this role that I've never had is to make that initial referral for special ed assessment. I have never been involved with a child who does not have existing um, special ed, if that makes sense. And I wasn't aware of that. I learned that last night. So um, might want to talk to Julie Venus about that, that um, it should back up. It, the SST is the student support team where they meet and talk about kids who need a referral 
um, that maybe a surrogate should actually be involved at that point. Mm -hmm. So, um, and just never so you know, Julie, who she spoke of, is a person who currently in the district is is taking over the coordination of surrogacy. Yeah, that Norma and, spoke of. Right, but I should maybe mention that to her that that was in the Pacer information as mm -hmm. the point where it can start the surrogate role. So. For sure, yeah. I mean, and the psychs, when they go for an initial evaluation, they have to have parental rights, parental signature before they can can, can even begin an assessment on special ed law. So, right, if they're searching for a parent and there is no parents and the students have right. had their rights terminated, then yes, that would be a situation where we would assign a surrogate. Okay. Okay, so, thanks for that. So, can you please tell us what services are provided? By school districts is yes. Um, a child has to meet eligibility criteria through an assessment um, provided free of charge from the district. And you can also, um, if you are willing to pay for it, you can have outside data. Martha, correct me if I'm wrong. But typically people have the school district assess and then... Um, if a child's eligible for services, they can receive it. And um, there, I don't know, Martha, this is more your thing than mine. Um, every disability has criteria. Um, from In my role, I request the last assessment and the last individual educational plan or IEP. And I make sure that needs identified in the assessment are being addressed in the IEP. Um, that's really what I do with every student. Um, I don't get into programming or, um, but if there's like an assessment identifies a reading disorder um, below his or her peers and that the IEP must address that, it must teach reading. Um, and there's speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, learning disabilities, emotional behavioral disabilities, um, aut autism spectrum, um, deaf and blind, hearing impaired, other health disabilities. There, Martha, did I miss anything, Ashar? Developmentally, cognitively, BCD. Oh, yes, cognitive yeah. disorder. And that's in um, 4 to 21 and birth to three is a whole different deal. And I I had one child um, that was younger than school age that I was a surrogate for. And the child actually got placed before I had to get too involved. So, um, but it depends on the age of the child, the um, what their needs are. And I think every school district should just try to meet those needs. Um, and having the right initial diagnosis is really important. And I think I stated earlier that kids who've had a lot of trauma are typically identified as emotional behavioral to begin with. And other aspects of their development are secondary in the initial placement often, and nobody pays attention to those things at first. And it's important as a surrogate for me to 
to notice improvement in standardized testing, that, that maybe the child no longer is acting out in class and that EBD diagnosis isn't appropriate anymore. Um, Shar, I think we've done this a number of times. That, um, And it's not something districts like to do. Um, it's a lot of work. They think it doesn't matter. Um, I think it really matters in that if a child is being screened for adoption, um, the difference between um, an emotional behavioral disability and a learning disability is very significant. Um, other health disabilities caused by trauma is very different than autistic autism spectrum. And you need to do that as a team. And I, I really believe that's important. And um, I don't know. Shar, you've been in meetings where I, I fight this one. What do you think? Well, I appreciate the fight. It's a good one. Um, and I have found over the years, and I'm sure listeners have too, that it's easy to tack an EBD diagnosis on an IEP, on an assessment for a child without delving deeper. And sometimes you need a whole neuropsychological assessment or a developmental assessment that districts don't have access to, smaller districts can't afford. And sometimes we have new teachers who don't understand those nuances or are just struggling to keep up and just can't even take on one more kid with an unusual or um, intensive diagnosis or um, treatment needs. But it's not fair to that child to let it go and let, just let that child continue to go on as an EBD kid when their needs are, are deeper than that. And I also see um, a higher number of kids of color who are tacked on with that EBD diagnosis when we're, that isn't the case. We're talking about trauma. We're talking about um, experience, generational trauma. We're seeing experiences with racism. All of those things go into how a child behaves in, in a setting that's not, that doesn't feel safe to them. And so it's really important that districts and, and the people who support kids are looking really deeply into what's going on, what's really causing the behaviors. It may be like Norma mentioned, the, the girl who couldn't hear, she could very well have been acting out because how frustrating can that be when you can't hear? Um, luckily she wasn't, or maybe unluckily she wasn't because she wasn't being noticed. But we need to know why these kids are acting the way they are, what's triggering it because no child wants to be a behavior, I put in quotes, problem. It's too, it takes a lot of energy to do that. It takes a lot out of a child to, to be acting out in, in ways that get them that label. And there's usually something else going on. So I appreciate how Norma, how hard Norma fights to make sure that all of the underlying um, diagnoses are uh, included in the plan and kids' needs are being met. Well, and in their defense, teachers are trained not in trauma-based learning. They're not trained that way. And 
they're they're they've sometimes got a classroom of 32 kids in front of them and it's my job to say um this child when the rest of the kids were in kindergarten he was um very 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 affected by trauma in his life and he's healing up he's more he feels safer and he's changed um I have one child that I've followed now for three years, and the first thing I noticed about him was by review, just reviewing the evaluations that he had improved standardized testing scores on IQ testing. That's very, very atypical, not, nor, not regular. Nobody changes their IQ very much. But because of the trauma and the spot he was in during that first assessment, um, it didn't begin to compare to where he was now in sixth grade. And it's important that somebody look back and say, whoa, you know, he's different now. His needs are different. He And um, teachers and um, special ed teams are overworked. They're loaded up to the top. And they often don't have time or the the knowledge base to review these files. And like I do, I'm old lady who's retired. I can sit all evening and read this. I, <laughs> I, I can. I have the time. I have one student, one IEP. When I was working, sometimes I'd have three IEPs in a day. Um, that's huge. It's a huge difference. And um, if I can let them... If I can let them be helped by me, that's my goal. Um, sometimes I feel threatening, I think. And sometimes I'm deliberately threatening if they're blowing me off, you know. But um, everyone's got their peace. And um, I remember the first time, I was early on, I didn't know Martha. I didn't know what I was doing, really. And um the team at Northwood wanted us a, a new psych done with new testing, not just review the file. Okay. And I sat there and I thought, I can request that. I'm the parent. I'm not the speech pathologist. Um, and I called Martha up and I said, Martha, can I request an evaluation when it's not due yet? And she sat there a minute and she went, oh, yeah. And I went, all right, this is going to work. Uh, we're going to work well together. Um, my role is different. I'm not another professional. I'm the parent. And um, sometimes that gets a little confusing um, because I do know the system and I do respect the limitations they work under. It's really hard. Um, I think every one of them without exception, wants the best thing for the kid, they just don't always know it. They don't know what to do. And um, that's my job. That's Shar's job and Martha's job. So um, no, that's a great answer. I appreciate you um, telling us how a child would qualify for special ed. I want to add to that because Norma talked a piece about it and teased about it and a piece about it and, and named a lot of the the um, categories that we we look for to qualify. If you back up to how did that happen? Um, yes, I mentioned that you have to have parent 
uh, or a person who qualifies as a parent sign that initial evaluation or plan. Before that, school districts are responsible to be providing weeks and weeks of interventions. They have what they call the CSTs, as Norma mentioned, the child study teams, that when teachers are having, hey, I have a concern with this student, either he's so low in academics or he's not, not getting it or behavior is showing up which is a um, very stereotypical thing when kids are acting up. And we don't know why. Like she said, it could have been trauma, something that's happening at home. Maybe they were up all night. Um, so school teams are responsible to do a lot of weeks, months of interventions to try to figure out what this is. Are there things that could help the student so we go, do not go to special ed evaluation? Um, if you finally get to the point where you've tried all these interventions, this is well, this has not helped, this has not helped, this helped a little bit, well, we're going to keep going on that. But if teams get to a, a decision that, okay, we need to plan for an evaluation, um, it should be comprehensive. It shouldn't just be looking at EBD. It shouldn't just be looking at LD. It should be looking at all the things we were working on. If they were having some understand misunderstandings of language or speech, then we better have speech in there as well. Um, so they need to be having pretty comprehensive first evaluations to look at things so you don't miss, oh, we didn't realize that he was that low and, and would have qualified for a developmental disability, but we only need to look for these other things. So we schools really are responsible to do a comprehensive first evaluation so they don't miss those things. And the and they should not start until the hearing has been tested, till the vision's been tested. Otherwise, a school psychologist cannot all of a sudden assume that a child can see the manipulatives or the things they're putting in front of them. So that's the first thing that should happen for any evaluation and the re-evals because things change every three years. A student's hearing or vision can certainly change just like ours change in three years for sure. Um, so those are really important things that need to happen first and that the, it shouldn't be just a hurry up, let's do this, the kids acting up, well, let's go EBD. Um, and the other thing where kids sometimes get missed, there's the E part of EBD is emotional. We have a lot of students that aren't acting up but they're the ones that are, are sometimes falling through the cracks because they're so full of anxiety. They're not coming to school or they're, or they're so depressed. And those are kids that also could qualify for services, possibly to be able to get help or at least figure out how to help them in, in involving community resources as well. Um, but really important to not go with the stereotypical decisions and do a comprehensive evaluation. I wanted to make sure to add that part of how students qualify for um, special ed. Well, and Martha, I think an important piece you brought to my mind here is I believe that kids who've had extreme trauma can change in that three-year reassessment period mm -hmm. and need to have another comprehensive assess assessment, not just the initial one, that more than any other kids I've encountered, there can be dramatic changes in three years because they're feeling safe, they're feeling cared for, and... Um, that's a lot of work to repeat that comprehensive eval every three years. Where, um, and that I can request that. That's my job to request that, and um, I take it very seriously. And that's um, I I have no empirical data, but just my observations that these kids are sometimes rapidly improving once they feel safe and and stable. A permanence is the word that um, Chris, Christy used. They feel some permanence. I really feel that. And um, that's the change in the primary diagnosis from EBD to maybe 
deaf and hard of hearing. You know, we don't know. So it, that's a difference for kids from with trauma. Good point, because every three years we need to conduct a reevaluation to show continued need. And unless someone like Norma is the person signing off on that eval plan, they may not be doing anything other than other than reviewing the ones right. from three years ago. And many parents don't know they have the right. They figure, well, here's the plan the teachers put in front of me to sign. They must know. They must be the professionals that know what my kid needs to be looked at. So this is an issue that parents don't understand that, oh, yeah, I'm saying, yeah, every three years we do this, where if there's things that have changed, um, they should be asking, hey, I want this looked at again. It's been a lot of years since we looked at academics again. Can we please do an academic or can we please do a behavioral functional behavioral assessment? Because things have changed in my child's life. Parents don't know that they can request that. Well, and yeah, Martha, then, oh, I was sorry. just going to say Martha made such a good point that look, just think of how much we've changed in three years, your yeah. hearing, insight, vision, all of that. Yes, huge. Well, and something else that Shara and I have just had a quite a battle over, um, a child was in St. Louis County and they moved to um, another whole Southern Minnesota and the, the school district there um, put him, he was in Duluth, he was, um, his disability was other health disabilities and learning disabilities. And we don't really know why, but they put him in a self-contained EBD school. It's called a level four placement where it was completely disregarding the, the IEP, um, doing whatever they wanted. And they had to deal with Shar and I and a PACER advocate to to stop it. So it goes beyond just the evaluation. You need to make sure that districts are honoring the IEP because um, it makes a huge difference. Well, with all of these legalities and everything that every guidelines that need to be followed, um, how does one become a special education surrogate? Like if someone's listening today and they're like, you know what, I maybe do have some extra time on my hand. I'm, in, um, I'm interested in this area of education and helping youth. Can anyone just do it? Um, can anybody that's retired and has an interest <laughs> and needs to have some knowledge of a special ed could go to their district they live in and say, hey, this is something I'm interested. Also, PACER has an awesome um, training that they yes. have for free online about what is a surrogate parent. I haven't watched the whole thing. I don't know if it tells you how to do it, but I know it really tells you the laws and all the things you need to know if you're considering being a surrogate parent. So that would be a good resource for someone who's interested as well as just contacting the special ed department of the district um, that you live in or you're interested in, in volunteering in and letting them know, hey, I'm interested in being a surrogate parent because I did get a couple people like that in my years um, and, um, some people, when they learned about it, thought, no, it's really not what I want to do. Okay. Yeah. You need to know what you're doing to volunteer for it. Well, and just legally that I think there, there were three criteria that you must be a volunteer. You cannot be paid. Um, you cannot profit financially from the child or his education, his or her education. And you need some knowledge of the special education due process. So it's nothing you can't learn. you 
um, you could work as an accountant and do this job if you wanted to, you, you know, you don't have to be retired. Um, and it, it can be as little or as much involvement as you want. Um, I basically have told Martha and Julie Ray that um, until someone else takes, picks up some of the, don't ever let a child be without services because you don't have a surrogate. I will do it. Um, so COVID helped that. It gave me something to do. Um, so it's worth doing. doing. So Char, when you retire, you can become a special <laughs> education surrogate. I was just thinking that Norma's going to hold off for another eight years and then yeah, she's right. going to try to tap me <laughs> for it. <laughs> I have to say. And in Martha's retirement, she's like full-time now too. <laughs> yeah. As a child protection worker, you know, I was lucky in that I had a very, very small caseload because it was recognized that these were, and I put in quotes, tough kids to place and to maintain in placements. But most child protection social workers have a large number of kids and school has, it just has to be at the bottom of the list because they're dealing with emergencies and safety and court and lawyers and phone calls from random people and just all sorts of crazy stuff and they often can't even make it to an IEP meeting, even though they should be there. So, and I know Norma won't sign off on anything if the worker hasn't been there because, you know, they have, they have the custody rights. But um, I just want to say again how important it is to have a, a special ed surrogate appointed when you have a child whose parents' rights have been terminated because basically as a child protection social worker, you are then that child's parents. And it's your obligation to make sure they have all the services and needs they can access. And yet you can't sign off on the special ed paperwork. And generally we as child protection workers don't know all the ins and outs and we don't know um, how, to, how to ask for what. And we have to maintain relationships with the schools in such a way that we're not offending anybody because we got to work with them for the next kid. And sometimes that get, gets tricky when a child has special needs that you know need to be met and the school district isn't willing or able to meet them or, the, or you just don't have the right words to be able to say, here's what I think this child needs because you don't know the education system. So that's why it's so important to partner with somebody like Norma to make sure that the child's needs are being met in all the areas of their life while we are essentially raising them until they can find their forever home. Well, and this is just, the special ed is just one little piece of their life. Um, we count on the county workers to, to take care of everything else, you know, the hearing appointments, the meds, the, you know, all of that. and. Um, that's why I won't separate education from the social workers because they're they're key. They're so important. And um, they don't need to duplicate anything I'm doing, but they do need to be aware. I really feel that, that um, Shar and I are a wonderful team. Um, I hope I don't take too much of your time. I, I try to respect that, but 
um, I can call you up and say, um, anything special you want me to bring up? You know, that's simple. And she'll tell me what, what's going on. Um, that relationship is ideal for the child's benefit. And um, I think it's not possible to have that with a, a special ed teacher. Um, it's very rare they've got time to, you know, they're they're overworked, overbooked, over everything. And um, I can provide that. Um, so it just, it's, we've been very lucky. Um, I don't know. How so I, Sonny and I have one last question and maybe it's more for Martha and Char. Um, we've been dying to know, has Norma's award given her a huge amount of fame now that she's a <laughs> distinguished award winner? <laughs> I've noticed her head swelling a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and Char came up with the solution. <laughs> Air dropping me into meetings. Um, and the doorways were too narrow for me. Um, I don't know. Well, I do. I mean, we appreciate the three of you joining us today, and I hope our listeners have really learned a lot. I mean, I've learned so much just from that award ceremony and the time we spent together today. And I want to thank all of you, too, for all you do. It's, you know, it doesn't go unnoticed, but you probably don't get a lot of pats on the back. But, hey, we're giving you some pats today. Well, actually, Absolutely. we're all Second. my rotator cuff patting my own back. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I thank know. you so much for being here today. It's Can I add fun. one more thing to put in? Yes, definitely. Um, special education rights are like property rights. Children are entitled, they, they own the rights to a free and appropriate public education. Um, our job is just to see that they get it. They already own it. Um, no one's allowed to take that away. And um, it's so important. It, there's nothing more important than a child's right to their education. So thank you for giving us a forum. Appreciate yeah, it. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to our podcast. And tune in again soon.